Australia is one of the sunniest continents in the world, so it's no surprise that Australians have embraced solar energy as a way of cutting their power bills and mitigating the effects of climate change. More than 2.6 million households, or one in five homes, have rooftop solar panels. But all that extra energy being fed into the grid can be tricky to manage. Hi, I'm Liz Foskier. Welcome to Tech Now, a podcast about Australian innovations that are shaping the future. Each episode, we chat to great tech thinkers who are changing the world thanks to the Global Connections Fund, a project run by the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering and supported by the Australian Government. Original electricity infrastructure did not intend for electricity to move in two directions. Power plants generate electricity, which travels through transmission and distribution lines to where it's needed. Transformers step voltage up or down as necessary. It's not impossible for electricity to flow backwards, but it has to be managed carefully to ensure transformers don't become saturated. That's where Dr Elizabeth Ratnam and Associate Professor Lachlan Blackhall from the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program at the Australian National University come in. They've come up with a way of better monitoring power flow through electricity grids. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Lachlan. Hi. G'day. So we know that solar panels are pretty popular and battery storage is the next big thing. What sort of problems does household generation pose for the grid? So as you um, said, Liz, uh, two-way power flows, the grid wasn't designed to both take energy from the, the poles and wires and deliver it to the customer and then to, to push it back up into the grid. And so solar panels are great. They produce energy when it's a nice sunny day um, and they push that energy if it's in excess of of the load that you need back into the grid. So if you're at home using all of your energy, then no problems for the grid necessarily. Um, But if you're, for example, at work and that energy is being um, produced, then it has to be um, pushed back and delivered to someone else at that point of time that it's generated. So batteries provide an opportunity for us in the grid to manage that power flow. And so it's not just pushed back into the grid when it's in excess, but it could be pushed back when it's actually needed. And so that's a really interesting and exciting time to be in power systems because in the past we've never had a way to to capture and store that energy at the customer's sort of premise um, and to control that which we call load through a demand management type response. An interesting fact and I hadn't really thought about it uh, with most households having solar panels on their roofs most households would have uh, the solar panels facing north to get maximum sun um, impact I guess um, which that would mean wouldn't it that most of our energy is being produced in the middle of the day when nobody's being no one's using it absolutely so yeah we do get peak generation during the day and you know predominantly people work out of their homes although perhaps not so much in the last year um, and so there is a significant amount of energy that's being generated that is flowing back into the grid and I think really to build on on Liz's point it's not so much that the poles and wires um, care about which way the electricity is flowing they're quite you know a wire is quite happy um, having electricity flow in both directions but it's more about how we think about our electricity system and how we operate it that actually creates those challenges if we don't manage it because we've built the entire system and all of our operational paradigms around the fact that electricity flows from large generation centrally out to homes 
So how easy is it for networks to control power flows? How do they do it? When I think about the time that I was in the utility and power flowed pretty much in one direction, the way we would control energy was through some, like, for example, demand response. So controlling air conditioning so that we could better manage the congestion. So just imagine like you're on a major highway and it's like a big traffic jam. One way to reduce that that load so we didn't have to expand the poles and wires was to manage the load. And if it was like a, a really significant event, for example, I recall quite um, prominently the, the Pasha Bolka, Newcastle, um, big storms in 2007 where we had big winds and a lot of power lines fell over. And in that particular case, we were dependent on customers calling us and telling us that there was like no power um, that they were receiving because we couldn't see at that point in time all the way down to the customer where the energy was. The things that we could control and manage were more at the the transformers that were like much higher up in the power system. And so we have very limited monitoring um, beyond the suburb level and we were reliant on those customer calls. And is it also a case to say, for example, if you know it's going to be a 35 degree day or it's been a string of 35 degree days and you know there's going to be massive demand for air conditioning everyone's going to come home and switch on their their air conditioners at 3 p.m does that also cause problems how do how do um, networks get around that how do they control that and i think that's a really good example of actually the challenge that networks actually can't control power consumption necessarily I mean, you know, when you come home on a hot day, you do want to turn your air conditioner on. When you want to cook dinner at night, you expect to be able to turn your oven on. And so, you know, network infrastructure exists to allow customers to consume energy um, when they need it. So this concept of control is an interesting one now. You know, Liz has talked about, you know, the emergence of sort of congestion um, on the network. So now we're actually really at the start of thinking about how we can actually Maybe control is the wrong word, but how we can influence customers or better operate um, our networks to be able to deal with that congestion. Um, and, you know, one of the key ways of doing that is to get better visibility and to record more data. And that's what you guys are doing, isn't it? So tell us about the technology you've developed. PSL um, was the, the partner that developed this micro PMU and it was part of an upper E, US upper E program, about $5 million over five years um, that I was part of when I was working in Berkeley. And um, what they did was commercialised um, this device which enabled us for the very first time to see um, unique characteristics in the the distribution grid that were previously unobservable. And so as a consequence of that, they rolled out the technology across the US. We had about 40 of those devices. And with great volumes of data, we also need databases, right, to store and visualize and understand. So what we're looking for is often needles in the haystack. So what is the one point in time where everyone's using the air conditioner? And um, can we see that? And so if we can see it, then we can think about ways to control and improve the operation of the grid. And so as part of that program, um, before I came to ANU, Lachlan and I had some great conversations and we thought we need to bring this technology to Australia. And that was the, the focus of the grant was to bring this, um, this sensor and this um, platform to visualise the data um, so that we could see for the first time in Australia these unique grid characteristics that allow us to identify when there's problems in the grid. So when a pole comes down, that we don't rely on customers to call us, we can see it. When there's reverse power flows on the grid, um, we can see it. And so if we can see things, then we can start to manage it. So that was kind of the underpinnings of the, of the grant was to um, bring our commercialization partners along 
along with us and deployed the technology in Australia. And how does it work? Does it tap into the systems that are currently in place, you know, looking at meters ticking over, how does it work? It's quite interesting because we always talk about seeing it, but actually, you know, it's measuring voltages and currents and power flows. You know, those um, measurements are then stored in a database and then we can do sort of data analysis sort of over the top. So even though, you know, we would talk about seeing it because it gives you sort of unparalleled insights into the behavior of the network, even though it's not really a visual thing um, necessarily. I think from my perspective, one of the exciting elements of, of the grant and of the project was, you know, you have Liz coming back from the US, bringing technology that she'd been involved in um, since its inception, and then being able to bring our expertise um, within the university here to being able to, um, you know, to use that data to better understand the behaviour of the electricity system. Capturing that data, how will that help? I mean, I think in, in really simple terms, you know, people may find it hard to appreciate the fact that the poles and wires that we see in our streets are not particularly well understood because the way we've always designed networks has been we've done some analysis, we've worked out what network we needed to build, and then we've gone and built it. But whenever you have a storm and a wire comes down, wires get replaced and they have different electrical characteristics perhaps. And so actually over time, the behavior of the system is, can actually be quite different from how we originally built it. So imagine you, you knew nothing about that, which is kind of our current state of knowledge. We've now got to a point where we can actually understand exactly what's happening um, on our power system. We can understand which direction power is flowing. We can understand if there's peaks in demand through air conditioning, maybe peaks in generation from solar um, in the middle of the day. And then we use that data to then work out how we would then better operate the network and assets on the network. So that might be best using when we use residential batteries to soak up excess solar generation, or it might mean making um, switching changes in the network, which changes how it's connected. Um, in future, it might mean you know thinking about how we um, charge um, electric vehicles and what time of the day we charge them to ensure that we don't have congestion on the grid. There's been some reports about um, because of the number of solar panels that are on roofs and the amount of electricity that people are mm -hmm. throwing in, that they might begin to start charging people for delivering excess energy to the grid when it's not needed. What do you think about that? I think we need to work out how to best operate our grid first, is what I would say. And we actually don't know what it means to be a good citizen in our grid now that we have two-way directional power flow. So what um, is, is a generator um, being at home a generator with a battery that's like potentially able to help us in the grid and so to penalize customers that are potentially helping us just because it's one way to cost it kind of makes me feel a bit nervous and so the crux of what we're trying to to do with these sensors and is to think about new ways to control the grid new ways to operate the grid and maybe those new ways are you know not a dollar per kilowatt hour which was designed for one-way power flow direction but maybe we think about new ways and new markets that enable us all to um, create the energy and, and to deliver it where it's needed rather than um, penalizing people for doing that potentially um, when, when it's actually not not necessary. It's a really interesting question and I probably have a sort of a, a, a similar but maybe slightly different take on it. We're used to paying for energy when we consume it. Um, I don't think there's in, anything inherently bad about thinking about changing how we charge for energy flows but I do think we need to first make sure that we're actually um, improving our grid for the benefit of energy users. And I think that's something that while 
both Liz and I come from a very technical background, you know, there's an emerging appreciation of the fact that the, you know, power system and, it, and energy systems broadly, they're not just technical systems. They're not just techno-economic systems. They're actually, they're actually socio-techno-economic systems and customers are at the heart of that. And so saying we're going to charge customers for export without actually explaining what that means and designing the entire system for the benefit of customers is, is maybe a little bit academic. You have to go and talk to customers. You have to understand what they want. And then we really need to think about sort of how we're going to reshape the design of our grid, the operation of our markets, um, and the operation of the system as a whole. And it's only when we take that holistic view that we're going to know whether charging for export is a good outcome um, or whether it's a terrible decision that's being made. I guess this is where having all the information becomes really necessary because by knowing how the power flows uh, work or what ne- what's mm. needed when, you can adjust people's behaviour or you can adjust the behaviour of um, entities, if mm. you like. Is, mm. that, is that how you see it? Yeah, it's hard to control people <laughs> and behaviour. That's like really what underpins the whole system, right, is people's behaviour. And we have prices to, to incentivise that particular behaviour. But, but when I was in the utility, for example, um, we rolled out time of use pricing. And the point of that was to change people's behaviour. So we didn't have those high congestion days on one day of the year. But what we found was fatigue, Um, after about two months, then the novelty of paying different prices for electricity at different points of time just, you know, disappeared and and that behaviour wasn't modified or shaped by those particular electricity bills. And then recently when we've looked at Texas and what's happened where, where customers are paying wholesale price, they didn't they needed electricity to, to keep warm. They didn't have an option of turning their power off. And so it's a really interesting question when you put price to modifying people's behaviour. If you take um, the affordability away or you take, you know, that as being a, a basic right, um, then, it, yeah, I, I don't know how to... <laughs> That's interesting. So yeah. I guess you would see that the technology you're looking at would be better suited for networks to use to modify the way they structure the networks and 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 what sort of infrastructure is available or is necessary we would sort of describe ourselves as sort of energy insiders you know early adopters people who are really deeply fascinated by the operation of the system it's sometimes a shock to realize that 98 percent of the population actually don't care like their (laughs) expectation is that they will turn the light switch on and the lights will come on exactly and so data is useful and maybe they're you know, the analogy I would give is that the ability to open up, um, you know, a map, uh, um, you know, a map of the road and to see congestion directly on that map is really helpful in determining, you know, where you're going to drive or how you're going to get somewhere today. So having equivalent maps of um, congestion for network operators is equally useful. Whether you're ever going to ask customers to look at a uh, an electrical network map of congestion and make a decision around whether they're going to cook dinner at six or seven tonight, I think is a little bit ridiculous because customers just don't have that expectation that that's how the, the electricity system is going to work. So, But might it guide the way they use their, say, battery storage, say, for example, and when they release the energy from their, what they've stored? Oh, it absolutely can. And I think um, you know, both Liz and I have had a background in this space in particular where you can actually automate the control systems for batteries so that they do respond to 
um, to congestion and, and network conditions, and they do that on behalf of their customers. So customers, again, don't need to sit there worrying about it. The technology can be put in place to use this greater visibility to actually ensure that the grid doesn't get into um, into difficulties. Is there anything else coming online that I don't know about that's very exciting <laughs> to you both? When we talk about batteries, we probably there's probably some more detail we can talk about there and that yeah, there's going to be batteries in people's homes. Um, you know, we've seen obviously the emergence of you know, people bolting batteries to their walls um, to capture their own solar generation. There's also going to be, you know, a huge emergence of batteries on wheels in electric vehicles. And if you think about taking our entire transportation fleet that we have on the roads and turning it electric, that's a huge amount of battery capacity that we're going to be adding into our grid. At the same time, we're also um, looking at some work around sort of suburb scale and community batteries. Um, and so they would be batteries that would sit in your street or in your suburb and rather than you having an individual battery for your house, you might get a virtual slice of battery. Certainly I find that quite exciting because you know, once we have a lot of storage in the grid, not only does it better deal with the challenges we face um, in operating the grid, but it also allows us to start to include a lot more renewable generation. And that's obviously pretty crucial to addressing the challenges of climate change as well. The interesting thing about car batteries, and I, uh, that hadn't occurred to me, I know there's a big push uh, as one way of dealing with climate change to get vehicles moving to become electrical. Um, but you're right, if every car in Australia suddenly had to plug in somewhere mm. to charge, that would be an amazing drain on the system, wouldn't it? On the one hand, yes, it would be a huge drain on the system and you know, there's a challenge for, you know, for everyone in our field to work out how we're going to do that. At the same time, those cars could also discharge into the grid as well. So you could actually think about you know, driving your car to work charging up during the middle of the day while there's plenty of solar generation and actually driving your electricity home um, in the evening and cooking your dinner with electricity from your car. So I love that thought. <laughs> it's, on the one hand, while they you know, might create challenges, it also creates opportunities. One of the really interesting opportunities for the distribution network, which is where Liz and I do most of our work, is that you know, it is going to be the point at which we get convergence around transportation and power. So we're going to electrify transportation. We're going to be using electricity more for heating to displace gas. And so the distribution network kind of becomes the electricity superhighway. And, um, yeah, we can build a future on top of that. And this is where analytics will definitely come into play. Thank you very much for talking to me today. I think we've covered a lot of ground. So thanks a lot, Elizabeth. Thanks a lot, Lachlan. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Ratnam and Lachlan Blackhole, recipients of the Global Connections Bridging Grant, part of the Global Innovation Strategy of the National Innovation and Science Agenda. For more stories about world-changing innovations, go to atsi.org.au forward slash technow. Thanks for listening.